going to talk a little bit about persecution, about boldness, and about faith, hope, and love. So we get to do the whole gambit. But let's pray as we get going. Lord and King, we just thank you for a wonderful, wonderful chance to gather together as believers. Uh, Lord, we trust on your name that you will be the, uh, our Savior and our Redeemer. And we uh, want to just, with whatever we can, study your word, praise and worship you, pray and Lord, and be in community as brothers and sisters. Lord, we love you and we, we adore this chance, Lord, to study your word and dig into it. Lord, may your Holy Spirit be in this room while we do it. May my spirit and my will get out of the way so that people can just hear the word and we can study what you say through Paul and that those messages and those, those, uh, the clarity of what's in this book, Lord, becomes crystal clear to all of us and, and understanding is what fills this room. Uh, be here, Lord, and bless this time and, and help me to uh, teach. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you don't open your books to Thessalonians right away, grab your Bibles and go to Acts. Um, I think sometimes when we read the letters of Paul, it's really nice to know what kind of town we're talking about, where we're at, what's going on in the context of the story. So Thessalonians is one of the earlier epistles that Paul writes. Um, it's on his second missionary journey, which is where a lot of the I think the adventures come from for Paul. Um, he's trying to go to Asia. He can't get there, just can't find passage, and, and nothing works out. And then he, he has a dream that there's this guy from Macedonia that calls him. So he says, all right, I'm going to Greece. And he heads to Macedonia, which was the capital of the Macedonian province. Uh, and it's where Alexander the Great like built his empire from, right? So this was a big city in the ancient world, Thessal Thessalonica was a city of 200,000 people, which is comparable to St. Paul. So it's still a big city, and we're talking about a major kind of metro area that he walked into. Um, and uh, he came there after being thrown in jail in Philippi. And if you remember when he was, Paul and Silas were thrown in jail, and then at night the Holy Spirit moved, the chains came off, and the guard was so amazed, they went to his house and his whole family uh, started to believe in Jesus Christ. So amazing things that happened. And then they were like, Paul, we just want you to get out of town because they couldn't keep him in a jail. And he's like, no, I'm not just sneaking out of town. You need to come here and say that you put me in jail unjustly. I'm a Roman citizen. And, and when you did that, you were, you were attacking me in such a way that you were hurting uh, my reputation. And my reputation right now is going hand in hand with Jesus. So he made them come down to the jail and excuse him formally and properly. And he did that. And in Thessalonians, we see he's going to do something very different. Um, so it's Paul doesn't do that all the time. He has different tactics and trades to do that. So if we go to Acts, he uh, comes in in chapter 17, verse 1, and we start to see kind of this, you know, the context of the letter that he's going to write in Thessalonians. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and then Paul, as was his custom, went into them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus who I preach to you is the Christ. So he's coming in, this is around A.D. 50, and he's coming in saying, You know, the Messiah that we all study in the Old Testament came and rose again, and I'm, we're talking about Jesus here. And he was saying that in kind of a graceful way, I think. We're going to see in Thessalonians that that wasn't welcomed, and we see that here in Acts 2. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, and they took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and they gathered a mob, 
and set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren of, uh, to the rulers of the city, crying out, um, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and they're all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So in Thessalonica, they kind of leave quietly. The brethren come to Paul and Silas, and they want him to go away by night to go to Berea. This is in verse 10, by the way. And they, so they go to Berea, but they kind of sneak out in the night. The difference here is in part because the brethren are saying, Paul and Silas, can you just take off? Because this is getting pretty ugly here. They took Jason and his whole family and other brothers from the church, and they, they beat them. And there's this strong persecution going on. And notice that Paul was only in uh, Thessalonica for three weeks, three, three synagogues or three Sabbaths. So he knew this little group of people for three weeks, and there was a few of them that devoutly began to follow the Lord. And in that, this persecution started to come out of nowhere. So when we go to Thessalonians, and go ahead and turn there now, Paul's kind of responding to that. And he's writing this letter. I mean, he had to sneak out of town. Tell me I put a bookmark in here. There we go. Um, he had to sneak out of town, and he's, he, he doesn't really, he wants to honor the fact that he doesn't want to cause more trouble there. So he sends Timothy back. And Timothy comes back to Paul and says, Paul, there's a church in Thessalonians. They all stuck with their faith, and they're, they're in it. So Paul doesn't have a lot of time to get into deep theology and questions. So later in Thessalonians, he's going to get into some of these things they're still wrestling with, like, what did you mean by this, and what is, how does this work? And so those questions we have a lot of times after we come into following Jesus Christ. How does all this stuff work? And Thessalonians digs into that a little bit. But Paul starts off in chapter 1 and 2 kind of addressing what's happened since he left. The rest of the story, and I think context is really important for this, after he goes to Berea, those nasty people from Thessalonica chase him to another town and run him out of that town too. So Paul has to like keep running away from these people until he can get to a place of peace where he can have a conversation. And that's when he sits down to write these letters. And he writes it after Timothy gets back with this report going, you wouldn't believe these people of faith. Not only that, we're going to see later as we get into the, the passage today, their faith is so strong that all the towns around them are starting to build little churches. So they're immediately, with three weeks of teaching from Paul, like this is super teaching, right? After three weeks of teaching from Paul, you've got churches that are out and people all around them have heard of these believers in Thessalonica. So it's a really wonderful group of people, and Paul's going to write with this great affection and deep love. So let's start in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is another word for Silas. Um, remember, we're dealing with both Aramaic and Greek here. So Paul uses the um, Silvanus, which is the, um, the Greek name for Silas. To the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul often starts his letters with grace and peace. And my wife Stephanie said I had to make uh, Chuck... Chuck Smith's point about this. It's amazing how grace and peace go together. You can't have peace without grace, and you can't have grace until you're at a point of peace. And those things kind of balance back and forth, and God honors that grace and gives you peace. And Paul con connects those all the time, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. First thing Paul mentions is prayer. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. 
I, I want to see at some point when I meet Paul in heaven, I want to know how big that guy's prayer list is. Because this is a guy that's constantly praying for people, and he kind of says that right up front. Obviously, in this situation, he's, he's praying because he left these people in a really kind of a chaotic situation. So he's praying for them. He's hoping things go well. He hopes that that faith takes root. Verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. There's a lot packed into here, but we start to see Paul's thinking here. I'm, I'm struck by how detailed these things are, even though he was only preaching to him for three weeks. This is not easy theology to get our head around. But Paul goes right into it with these people. I think in part because he saw camaraderie of people that were willing to endure persecution. They don't have time for the easy stuff. They want to get right to the, the stuff. So your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. These are odd things that he starts to frame things a little differently than the world does. Faith is something that, that, that you might at first glance think is something that's easy. We know later in James that, that faith without works is dead faith. But we don't have to do works to get faith either. And we see that also in the New Testament. And here we see the work of faith or a product. Um, or if you take that word, it's not necessarily like you have to do things to have faith. It's more like um, that faith has a work that it does. There is a production to faith. There is something that comes out of your faith. So though we don't do works, it is something where when we have faith, it does some work for us. Does that make sense? Labor of love, I think this is another one of those things where if you, if you watch enough TV shows, love is an emotion, right? And we just constantly get that image of love from our mass media. You feel love, you're in love, love is this romantic thing, it's colorful, it's usually associated with pink, and love is this kind of thing that you fall in and out of, and it's an emotional kind of situation. But Paul frames it as a labor. The, a labor of love is something that's more like a work or a choice that you make. If I'm going to do a labor, if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to dedicate myself to that labor on a week-in and week-out basis where I'm going to commit to it. When I married my wife, I made a vow that I was going to be, have that labor of love for the rest of my life. When I clean my kids' diapers, not anymore, but when they were little and I had to do that at 2 in the morning, it's that sort of feeling when you're a parent where you're kind of like, this is, man, I'm just, but the love in you makes it so it's not work anymore. It's just kind of, you know, tired, but you're doing it because this is a commitment you've made. You're going to raise this kid, and you're going to love on this kid. When you're, a church is in the middle of persecution, sometimes that love is tough. Actually, frankly, when you have to try to meet people in the church and they're weird and quirky like me, sometimes it's a labor of love just to get along with people in the church. But we do it because, <laughs> because we commit to the church, and I'm going to figure this out and figure out how to love you, and you're going to hopefully do the same for me because we're in church together. And you're going to commit, and that's Paul's wish for this church, that labor of love. Patience of hope. Hope's not a singular thing. Hope is something that happens over time. I think it's amazing that when Paul writes, he talks about the Lord Christ um, returning now. Like he's going to come back in a week. Imagine if we actually had that kind of hope, where we decided that we're going to, on a daily basis, hope that the Lord comes back today. And I know that sounds almost cliche in the church, but it's one of those kind of that attitude, that positioning that Paul has when he writes. What if we didn't meet next Sunday? What if we were actually at the end of days next Sunday? And instead of being here together, we were 
in the glory and joy of Jesus Christ together. And I'm looking across the room and I'm seeing Jesse and he's here. And I'm like, good, I know it wasn't just, you know, that we're all here together. And what a joyful thing that we can be in the body together. What a sad and tragic thing when we go to heaven and there's not people there that we thought would be. Or there's people there that we've been working with for years and their hearts were so hard they didn't want to be with God. And that's, that's the part of the tragedy, but the joy is being able to see fellow believers are going to be there. I want to get to know those people better. Sometimes it's a labor of love, and all of that produces a work of faith. Election by God. There's a big thing here. I even put my notes. Don't talk about this. I don't think Paul gets into it. However, this is one of those passages where people talk about God predestining everything. And there's people that struggle with that idea that God has planned everything from the beginning of time and that that's there. I don't know why they struggle with it because usually those people are extremely happy that they have free will and choice. But when God has free will and choice, that gets to be a real difficult concept for them. If God wants me to be a believer and he wants to do miraculous things to compel and convince me to come into the kingdom, if he wants to do things where the word comes in power and spirit to the Thess Thessalonians and God is elected to do miraculous things there so an entire church can be founded in three weeks, you go try to found a church in three weeks and see how that goes for you. But this church is built in three weeks, and it's still going when Tim comes to visit. To me, that's an amazing kind of thing. And if God elects to do those kinds of things to build his church, I don't have any problems with that. Later in the book, he also talks about how Satan interferes with things, which seems to not agree with predestination. And basically, my notes are like, I don't really want to get into it, because frankly, I don't think Paul's getting into it here. And if we want to stick with what Paul's saying, I just don't think this is a spot where he's digging into that. And seemingly there's some sort of balance between God's will and this thing we call free will and the fact that there's enemy spirits like Satan and stuff like that out there. Um, and when Mike gets back, he can come back and cover that part a little more thoroughly than I do. So we'll go to verse 5. For our gospel, oh, let me say one last thought. I'm okay with that. I think it's okay as a believer to not know everything and to just trust that somehow or another that that works. Um, that Satan can interfere and God can predestine at the same time. And in uh, the Old Testament, it says God way, God's ways are not our ways. And there's a peace that comes when you're like, I'm okay with that. In fact, if I'm preaching to other people and they want to hear more of an open theism argument, let's go, let's find the Bible verses and let's get you saved. And if they want to hear that God's in control and he has everything under control, great. Uh, here's an election by God. God picks people. And let's go there. If that brings them into the kingdom... Let's get into the complexities later, but for now, let's love Jesus together. And I think that's kind of what Paul's doing here, because he's not getting into the details with people that are being beat for their faith, right? He's kind of moving on. Verse 5, the gospel, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in it much assurance, as you know what kind of men were among you for your sake. Paul's talking to a group of people where he had to leave town, and it apparently, as we go on with the letter, what has happened since Paul left is this group of people that didn't like him have started to spread rumors. And there's gossip. Well, that Paul, he was just here to make money off you. He was a shyster. He just came rolling into town, and he was just trying to get your attention and your sympathy and get you to like him. And we got to get hooligans like that out of our town. And you can almost hear it when you read how Paul responds to it. And his response to that is, we didn't just come to you in word. You saw power when we were there. God did things, and in the Holy Spirit. And I think of this kind of like this. I can teach Thessalonians to you, but I have no way of knowing if this stuff gets to your heart. No teacher knows if what they're saying gets to the heart of the people in the room. It's impossible. 
the only way that you're going to get anything out of the next 30 minutes with me is if the Holy Spirit starts touching your heart. And that's where I can say things like, I didn't just come to you with some sort of fancy speech or argument. I'm just reading you the word. You could do this. Jesse does it better than I do some days. So anybody can come and teach it. We're just working through it, and you do a little homework ahead of time. What hopefully is happening is the Holy Spirit's working. Even better, I'd love to see the power of God at work. And that's the kind of thing. So I love seeing when Paul makes arguments where he's just saying, do you remember? And that's his response to all of these constructed arguments that other people made about who Paul was, what his motives were, why he was there. And we'll see how that goes on. Verse 6, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. These people were examples to everyone. This is what it looks like when Christians get persecuted. It, they do it with joy. Paul and Silas, when they were in jail in Philippi, were singing songs. It's ridiculous joy to anybody who doesn't know what it feels like to feel joy. Faith has gone out to all these different places. They were examples to all. The power of God works in new believers. Um, these people were so effective, and they were so young. And you think, wow, I, just, I want that kind of inspiration and energy. Have you ever met a brand new believer where they're practically dancing when they find their faith? And there's just this amazing joy in them. Have you ever hung around with middle schoolers at a youth camp when they're finding Jesus? And they're like, yeah, and they're just all over it. And all they want to do is go out and tell people. And the rest of the world tells them, chill out and cool down. Take it easy. Don't go too fast. But these people weren't worried about any of that. They didn't really care what people thought. They were so excited about their faith that their faith had gone out into all of Macedonia and Achaia. And that's a big region, by the way. Another piece about Greece, and I think we, we get to this understanding of why people ran them out of here. Um, Greece was filled with idols and idol worship, and that's a vague term that we use sometimes when we study the Bible, but let's really get into it. We know these gods. I mean, we're talking about Zeus, you know, we're talking about Hades, Aphrodite, Athena, Mars, all these gods, and they mixed them together, the Romans and the Greeks. This is all the foundation of Western civilization. Though we don't have temples to Athena anymore, we do have movies that have combat in them, right? And Call of Duty and these things. Though we don't have Aphrodite temples anymore, we have giant shows that are all about emotional love and finding Eros where you need to, right? Though we don't have things with Mercury, we still watch sports, right? Those traditions in the Greek society are ones that have gone right through to Western society in every, almost every Western society. We worship the emotions. We worship, we worship those moments of heightened excitement. The problem is then you wake up the next day and it's not as exciting anymore. So what do you do with people that come into work every day and they're just juiced? And how do you react to people that do a little more than what they have to do just because they love their Lord? And how do you deal with these people that are just going all in all the time, all, all day, and, they, and Paul's going to use the word boldness later on. They're just bold about their faith. And they don't worry about keeping it cool or taking it easy or whatever. And you, boy, if your law tells me not to talk about Jesus, I'm going to ignore your law. Well, and that's where they start saying things like, you know, you don't think Caesar's the boss, you think Jesus is the boss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I'll honor Caesar, but he's not my king, he's not my boss. The Lord is. Well, that gets you killed in that society, but it also gets you persecuted in our society. Now, we have teenagers in the room. Try going to school and sitting in the front row every day and asking your teacher lots of questions. Just try it. See if that gets you persecuted. I guarantee that it will. 
there's a point where the rest of the world wants to level you. Kierkegaard called this, actually called it leveling. That anybody that puts their head up above the crowd, the rest of the world's going to try to chop that off. Right? So if you go into work and you say, yeah, I'm just going to stay late because I have to and I'm not going to punch out. There's going to be people that get really upset about that because darn it, if you don't, if you punch out and still do work, then what's that make them? If you're joyful about customer service and they're, and they're putting up with it, what's that make them? If you actually pay attention to what your boss says when your boss is not around because it's the honorable thing to do and they don't, that means they have to work harder. There's this guilt thing because they actually care what you think about them and you don't really care what they think about you. So there's this dynamic that starts to happen that I think Paul gets into. In the meantime, oh, my notes. The point is, I don't think we've left the world of the Greek. We can't just dismiss them as an ancient society. We still worship the emotions. We still, and just watch TV. And it's, they're telling you all these emotions you should be having, but then when we look in our hearts, they're not there. I don't feel more joyful when I go to a movie. I do for about two hours, and then I come home, and I'm like, man, that was a waste of money. You know, and I think that way. So when you meet a person that's happy and they don't have idols, I think that's confounding at a deeply psychological level for people that bump into that. When you just have exuberance and joy and respect for others and love and care for others, most people in the world will either wonder why you're like that, because they want more of it themselves, or they'll say you're a liar. There's something false about you because nobody can be that joyful. You're a fake. And I don't know what your problem is, but it's all fake. And I think that's exactly what happened to Paul here. That he came in and these people started being on fire for Christ and people were like, this is all a sham. And so they're trying to go at that. So verse, oh, I got ahead. For verse 8, for from you the, the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we don't even need to say anything. Paul was going into new towns and people had already heard of Jesus. Holy moly. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turn from God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from all wrath to come. When I turn away from the things of this world and I wait on Jesus, that's a, an odd thing for the world to handle. They don't know what to do with that. But Paul's saying that's what makes us different. We don't trust in ourselves. There's, I think, a fallacy running through even my brothers and sisters that go, go to other churches. There's this belief that if you look deep enough in yourself, you will find something, right? This, by the way, comes straight from Buddhism. It's an Eastern philosophy and thought, and we teach it all the time here in America now. And there's, there's whole philosophies, and I won't say names because I don't want you to even bother looking them up, but that idea of if you're feeling down, you just need to stop for a moment and dwell and embrace and, and find this energy somewhere in your own spirit. I remember being a teenager and hearing that logic and maybe it was God just already trying to get truth into me. But So I tried it. I went home and I was like, okay, I got to just get myself revved up. And I sat there for a while and then I thought, but I'm not revved up. That's the simple basic truth of this. I'm just not revved up. But I met people who were. And I tried to come up with all these reasons why they were, you know, what was it? Maybe they're just a little bit, you know, loony. And look at how many times Christians get called kooky by the world, right? Maybe these people are just a little nuts. It's kind of like, yeah, but I kind of want to be nuts because they're happy and I'm not. And that's what drove me to the faith is these people just living that sort of thing. So I get excited when I see people that are just waiting on Jesus. 
that Jesus rose from the dead, he's coming again, and Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Think of all the theology that Paul packs into one sentence right there. That's it. That's simple enough for a child to understand. Everything else is us wanting to know more. But the basic truth of the gospel is Jesus was here. He rose from the dead. He conquered this thing that none of us can conquer. And he's coming back, and he delivers us from the... And he's going to be the one that gets us away from the wrath to come, which says there's a wrath to come. There is a punishment that's coming for all the nasty things I've done. Every time I've been snappy with my kids, the just thing should be for God to be snappy with me. Do you know what I mean when I say snappy? Maybe that's a Minnesota, but I don't know. But every time I've been cranky with my wife or I came home and I just didn't have energy to talk with her, then there should be a time when God turns his back on me. That would be just and fair, right? Every time, even before, before you know, I remember just the rage I had, the fights I got into in middle school, you know, the, the anger that I had with my parents when I was a young person, you know, all that stuff. It's only fair if that got done back to me, all that selfishness that I had in my life. But Jesus actually took that wrath. Praise God, he, I don't have to endure that. I'm trusting that Jesus is going to take that wrath from me. What joy do I have? There's nothing that can happen to me in this world that will take away that kind of abiding joy. I think that's kind of an amazing thing, and I think it's one of those things where we're going to see at the beginning of chapter 2 here that there's a reaction to that I think is boldness. That if there's nothing any one of you can do to me to take away my joy, I can just be joyful. And that's going to drive some of you nuts because you don't have power over me. And this is true of every believer in every workplace, at every family gathering, that my emotions are dictated by Christ and my hope in Jesus Christ. They're not dictated by the people around me. And there's people where that really bothers them. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. This is the third time Paul mentions how they arrived. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were treated spitefully at spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Remember that he was beaten in Philippi, right? So the travel time would have been, it said he got stripes. And in the ancient world, stripes means he was whipped like Jesus. And they would basically tear your back apart. I won't get into any more. We'll keep it at PG-13 there. But, they would, but that doesn't heal overnight. Paul would have been walking into town probably with Cyrus, Silas really taking care of him. And the first thing that probably would have happened is they would have washed his wounds and cleaned them. And he would have been sore. But Sabbath comes around and he's like, take me to the synagogue. So they'd have been rolling him into the synagogue and he would start preaching from the Old Testament saying, Jesus is this guy that we've been reading about. And this is an amazing thing. So despite the affliction and his spiteful treatment in Philippi, we were bold in God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. In much conflict, a Jewish synagogue in the first century, they would do the reading. Trevor might be able to help give more detail on this. They would do the reading and then the rabbi would kind of expound on that reading. But other people in the room that were elders in the community would start to expound on that reading too. There would be a conversation. So when there was an argument on the Sabbath, it would get to be a loud, boisterous event. So Paul would be calmly teaching the Gospels while the people around him are getting angry. Remember we see often that they rend their clothes? That sort of thing comes when I disagree with you and you've, you've, you've debased the whole situation. I can't even keep these clothes anymore. And I just don't know the instinct to rend your clothes. I don't get that. But the idea is they're showing their anger, their, their frustration. So when he says we preached boldly in much conflict, and then the result was they actually, three, after three weeks, they were taking Christians and beating them and hauling them off. 
yeah, there was a lot of conflict there. Verse 3, for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it deceit. Obviously, these things are being said about Paul, and he's trying to set the record straight. Wouldn't it be wonderful in the church if we had people that spoke in boldness despite the conflict? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we just had more men and women of God that just unashamedly talked about their faith with everybody they ran into? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Well, yes and no. Yeah, it'd be kind of cool from a Christian perspective. But no in that there will probably be more persecution if we did that. If we want less persecution, shut up, be quiet, and keep your church on Sundays. But if you go out into the world every day, every week, people are not going to like that after a while. Stop talking about Jesus so much. And you'll be like, I will when he comes back. And then I don't have to. So, And you can get there. So I remember, and I'll go back again to middle school, one of the biggest things in my faith that stopped me up when I was a teenager is I was so worried about what other people thought of me. It was something where I didn't like to sing, believe it or not. I was scared to talk in front of people. I never got up in front of people. And I was terrified of what people thought about me. And I just feel that so much. I was a middle school teacher for so long that I just have a heart for those middle school kids, that they're just terrified of what people might think of them. And that's how we are in the flesh. One of the great freedoms of the Christian faith is you just stop caring what other people think. So I got saved and I'm like, all right, I don't care what people think, but then I still did. It was like the whole Buddhist thing, right? If I just look deep in myself, I'll, I'll get rid of all my fear. But it never worked. The only thing that ever gave me boldness is that I love God and God takes away the fear. So instead of trying to be more bold, I turned to God and started praying, God, just make me bold. I'm sick of fighting this fight with myself and I'm terrified of anything I might do or say that would come out the wrong way or do the wrong thing. So Lord, just take it away. And lo and behold, about a year later, I had looked back on my year, and I just, it was gone. I didn't try to. I didn't work at it. I didn't try to get better at it. I just literally just stopped caring. This is well into my 30s that that happened. That if somebody doesn't like me, they don't like me. And, and let it only be for the reason that I love Jesus too much and that that bugs them. Because if that's why they don't like me, that's good. If they don't like me because I've wronged them, that's kind of on me. So let me live in peace with others and let me boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ so that it can cut at the heart of an unbeliever. That joy and boldness is, I think, the primary thing that brings people to faith or pushes them away. And we need to just be aware of that as a church, that that's part of what we meet about every Sunday, is how are things going? Are people coming to the faith or are people attacking you for your faith? And let's tell those stories together. But let that be the thing that defines us and nothing else. Paul says, and again, if, if, if the people are pushed away from the faith, they start to come up with reasons. People start to explain things they don't understand with ridiculous explanations. One explanation could be that Paul was just wrong. He was in error. That was probably the synagogue discussions, that it was uncleanness, that Paul was just a, a despicable human being. And that's what caused him to do this. Or it was in deceit, that he's somehow deceiving you. So Paul goes into an argument here where he starts to explain none of that's the case. Um, I came to you in purity, and his justification for that is remember. And I think that's a good thing that he can sit back on that. So verse 4, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. I didn't come there to please you. God tests my heart. I'm there because God's asked me to be there. Verse 5, I'm going to fly through some of these. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know. Again, I love that justification. You remember, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is our witness. So you remember this. God's my witness to this. I didn't come to you to try to flatter you. 
And I think when we teach people the word and the God, we try to, there's another movement in the church where we try to make it super gentle, right? The, the gospel's offensive. You're a sinner, and you need to just turn to God because you don't even have the ability to fix your own sin. That's a pretty offensive message to people that find their own strength, right? As false as that strength might be, that's not something they're going to welcome, and it's, nor is it something we should be tender about or try to cover up. So when we try to make churches that are gentle and, and we have theologies that everyone can agree on and accept, I don't know, I'd rather disagree with you about something, but at least you're my brother. Let's talk about it. Let's work it out. Like Paul's trying to get into the, you know, some of these things, and he, and he moves past some of them very quickly. I think Paul's perfectly okay with arguing with people in the faith. And in the church, we try to never argue, never have problems, never have disagreements. And I love going to a church when I say sometimes we don't agree with each other that somebody says amen. You know, that there is a church and a place where we can do that. And in fact, first service I said this, and I'd like, you know, I don't think everybody in the church likes me. I don't have any imagination that people do. I don't think Paul did either. I think there's actually probably people in the church that think I'm a little weird. But I think some people in the church are weird too. And there's a point where what I think of others is selfish. It doesn't matter what I think of others. i got to put that to bed. Because if you're here on a Sunday morning, it's because you love Jesus or you want to find out more about Jesus. So whatever I think of other people or don't think about other people, that's just vanity. i got to put that away. And I'd hope other people are working on themselves. But it's not Paul's goal to flatter people or make people happy or do that. And I love that we read in the Bible that there's this boldness to this guy. This guy doesn't care what you think about him. He cares that you hear the word because he loves you. And that's a, a thing that, again, I think confounds the world and explains why in three weeks people were running him out of town and beating up his friends. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men. Have you ever seen people in the church that just want to be on the stage? that just want to be in front, and they'll walk into the church, and they just want as much attention as they can get the day they walk in the door. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. We might have made demands as, we might have made, when we might have made demands as Apostle of Christ. In other words, as an Apostle of Christ, Paul had every right to ask for some support. You know, sometimes churches ask for support to pay for people to be professionally keeping the church running. He's saying, I had every right to, but I never did. I didn't come to you for money for glory, for flattery, to make you happy. None of those things were true. But, verse 7, we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishing her own children. This is part of what I love about Pastor Mike. That guy just loves us. You know what I'm saying? He just loves us. It's clear that that's his heart for the people that he's serving and ministering to. What an amazing image of a mom nursing a child. The tenderness that goes with that, the care, the connection, it's a beautiful image. Later, Paul's going to use the image of a father, too, which is not as beautiful. So, um, but that idea of, in despite all these things the world is saying, the way we actually came to you was just that we loved you. Again, the guy had a, I can't imagine even moving if my back was tore up after getting whipped. And this guy is coming in meek and gentle in the midst of this conflict and argument and all these other people. So, moving on, verse 8, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you'd become dear to us. At some level, ministering and teaching the faith is not just about the ideas. Showing people the ideas of Jesus Christ is amazing. It's wonderful, and I love that. But it's also about the love and the care that we have for each other. And Paul's saying, I wasn't just there to teach you. I was there because I actually liked you. And you know that. 
don't listen to what people are saying since I've left. I wasn't a shyster. I wasn't there to get power and attention. I was there because I loved you. You know that. Again, that argument of remember. Verse 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and our toil, for laboring day and night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. How does a guy go back to work after getting whipped in Philippi? How does a person say, I don't want any of your money. I just want to help you. Have you ever gone to work and done something nice for somebody and their first reaction is, well, why are you doing that? What's your possible motive for doing that? And your thought is, because I like you. I want to get to know you better. You needed help, I gave it to you. Why aren't you asking, you know, why are you trying to get attention? Are you trying to take my job? Are you trying to look better than I look to the boss? No, I'm just doing it because I like you. In fact, let's put you up on the pedestal and help you elevate within this company. Because I think you're really good at what you do. There's an understanding that Christian attitude towards others is just not the same as the, the worldly attitude towards each other. So there's a completely different worldview there. And I love that I just remember how we worked hard day and night so we never had to burden any of you. We, Paul's basically saying, we didn't want your money. We wanted, we wanted your friendship. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. What a beautiful sentence. Can we say that of our own lives? Can we look back on our life and say, we're above reproach. We've done everything we know how to do to be at peace with the people around us. Have we made things right or have we gone to sleep on our anger? As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So now we, Paul's giving kind of the fatherly image. But basically Paul sees himself as a parent. And he's got kids in Thessalonica and kids in Berea and kids in Philippi. And the kids that want to come and meet God, he wants to show them how to do that. Notice that the image of the father isn't of nurture, it's of charging them. That sometimes he's there to convict them and tell them to do things. So that idea of walking worthy of God goes hand in hand with that we do this. We don't have to walk worthy of God because that saves us. We walk worthy of God because God loves us. And it's our response to God to try to walk worthy to the best of our abilities. You are witnesses. Again, Paul keeps coming back to this argument. You were there. You remember. You know our relationship that we had. And all this stuff that's going around, it's just not there. You are witnesses. And God also, how we devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Twelve, that you would walk worthy of God calls you into his own kingdom and his own glory. Hallelujah. Verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which is also effectively works for you who believe. The Thessalonians didn't, I get the sense from this, that they didn't bicker with Paul. That when they heard the word, they, were just, they just thought about it and said, hmm, I'll consider that. That made me think of this research project I was on. And this goes back to this. A lot of times intelligence and wisdom don't get along with each other. When people don't understand things, they come up with very intelligent explanations. So we're doing research on these school principals and why they did or did not use data. And we found that across the United States, high school and elementary and middle school principals generally don't use the data that they get. So now that we can collect all this data, we're wondering, well, why aren't you using it? What could possibly explain why principals aren't using this data? So 
one of the researchers, I was, this is while I was in grad school, I was working with a, a researcher that was doing these studies, and he was coming up, he wrote entire papers on the reasons why administrators don't use data. And he came up, I tried to go back and find most of them, and they come down to uh, principals are resistant to using data, they don't know how to use data, they disagree with the philosophy of data for the use in the classroom, or they simply didn't know how to read the actual data products that they gave them, and all these kinds of reasons. But all of these reasons had to do with the principal being the problem, right? So we go in and we started doing interviews, and we're reflecting on one of these interviews, and I said, do you, do you remember the, the data set for that principal we just talked to was on the desk, yeah? And, and they're like, yeah, and I was like, I can't believe how big it was. It was a three-ring binder. It was this thick. I kid you not, no exaggeration, it was huge. The binder didn't even shut all the way. And I, so I'm thinking about it just out loud, and I said, what if the principals aren't looking at the data because they just don't have time? What if they're extremely busy people and this is a people job and you're giving them a book this thick and maybe the very simple explanation of lack of time is, would explain this just fine. To this guy's credit, after years of writing all these principal are the problem papers, he just stopped. And he said, we need to reinvent how we deliver data to principals. And took his entire research agenda on a dime and just went this way. After one research meeting, we were like, maybe there's a really simple explanation here. Not only does that give us an insight into sometimes simple explanations, wisdom just trumps intelligence. Most people that I know, when you go after these large constructed arguments and you just say, or maybe Jesus is just the Messiah. You know, there's this perfectly simple explanation for everything you're trying to explain in these big, large things. Maybe God just created the world. I'm just saying. It's a simple argument, but maybe that's the case. And if that is the case, we don't need all of these large, intelligent arguments. In that, it's also an example of what I think Paul had with the Thessalonians. They just stopped. Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. And, on it, and they just, there was no bickering or no arguing. They just kind of moved on and did it. So when you heard the word of, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. You heard it, you believed it. Boy, that was simple. That just saved us years of debating with each other. And now we can start building a church in three weeks. Verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and Christ Jesus, for you also suffered the same things that your own countrymen did. You guys are getting persecuted too, just as they did from the Judeans. So the Greeks are persecuting you just like the Judeans persecuted the, the churches in there. And you're imitating them because you're, you're right up, you're up and running fast and that has to do with the passion that they had in that aspect. Verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not please God and they're contrary to all men. What a curse. What is it like to be contrary to all men? And I think at the root of being contrary is the argument itself is the sin. As much as we think we're right about something, when we're arguing with people, we're saying that I know more than you do. And we see Paul staying true to this philosophy. He'll say, all I have to brag about you is the truth of Jesus Christ. That's the only truth and reality I'm going to get into an argument and bicker with you about, is that Jesus is the Christ. He died and he rose again. He's going to take our wrath for us. That's the core that Paul sticks to, and he sticks to it again and again and again. All this other stuff to argue about? You would think the Christians in the first century would have plenty to argue about. They had slavery like nothing we've ever seen. They had prostitution like nothing we've ever seen. 
They had violence in the street where people get angry and they go into somebody's house and rip them out of their house and beat them up just because they wanted to. They had just chaos compared to the society we live in. You'd think Christians would be out protesting, picketing, saying no more coliseums, and they'd be doing all these kinds of things, and they'd be having these large arguments with the Romans about how to do government and all that kind of thing, but they didn't. They just called in the name of Jesus Christ, and they loved Jesus, and they changed the world. It was just that simple. God comes in and acts power when people take their will and they put it to the side. The opposite of that is being contrary to everybody around you. And I see so many people, believers that I love, brothers and sisters in the faith, they're contrary to everyone around them. We're guilty of this sometimes. That we're so right about what we think that we forget to love people first. And I'm not saying love their sin and accept everything they do. I, I am saying that there should be a real love there before we try to speak into people's life like Paul had for these people. I love them. And the next thing Paul goes to is this longing to see them, this love that he has for them. So in Paul's head, I think this philosophy is, is well in place when he's talking about this. And I don't think this is from us as humans because we always want to be right. I always want to be right. Ask my wife. I love being right. And I love getting into it with my fellow believers. But there's a point at which that becomes contrary to all men. And the problem with these people that were persecuting Paul is that they were contrary to other men, but he still loved them. 16 gets a little deeper into that. Forbidding, these people, these folks that were persecuting Paul, forbidding us to speak to Gentiles that they might be saved, to the point where they didn't even want us talking about Jesus. Sound familiar? They don't even want us praying in public places. They don't want anything about God on any sort of building or any th sort of thing. right? And there's people like that here today in our society. So always to fill up the measure of their sins, and this itself is their sin. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Remember when he's talking about Christians, he says that, um, well, actually in five, verse five, or chapter 5, verse 9, I have this, I think it's in there somewhere. He talks about how Christians are not going to be there for the wrath, right? Jesus, we're saved from the wrath in some kind of way. Let me get that right. I am teaching right now. 5.9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not going to get wrath. And, and, and I talked about that a little bit. Thank goodness I don't have to get the wrath I deserve. But he does talk about these poor people that are persecuting him. What love a guy has to have. If somebody persecutes me, my natural reaction is to be mad or to try to get back at him or to run. And this guy's natural reaction is, you know, they're filling up their measure of sins. When they go and persecute believers, they're putting themselves against God. And wrath is, has come upon them to the uttermost. They're already in hell. They're already experiencing that wrath. Their hatred towards Christians is, is destroying them on the inside. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, who am I going to beat up today? I mean, very few people do that. Maybe boxers, right? But these people are actually persecuting Christians to the point where they're chasing them to other towns. They're already at a state of such anger and such hate and such fury. That's got to be miserable. How do you go through life like that? Paul has joy in his heart. So at the same time they're throwing him in jail cell, he and, Paul, he and Silas are like, praise God, let's sing some songs together. That seems a little kooky. But not to Christians, because when you have joy in your heart, it makes total sense. Singing is the natural response to joy. 17, but we, brethren, I love how very, he spends so little time talking about the people persecuting him, and he spends so much time talking about the relationship. Do you see? It's only one or two sentences on these other people. Basically, I feel sorry for them. They've got wrath in their life that we don't have. And then he goes right back. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart. 
Even though I can't be there in person, I love you. My heart's still with you. Endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. I sat on this one this week, too. Do you know people in your life where you just want to see their face? That phrase. It also says, when you talk about God, I want, to, I want to see your face. There's that song in there. and Just that image, and I'm like, I don't know how bad I need to see people's faces. But then I thought about it, and I thought, you know, when I'm traveling or out of town, I imagine Stephanie's face. She's my wife, for those of you that don't know me. And I love her eyes when she smiles. Her, it just lights up a room. And I can actually stop and think, I just can't wait to see her face again, to hold it in my hands and kiss it. I love her face. And it's wonderful. And there's that marital kind of love of the face thing too, but I'm thinking, but you know there's brothers and sisters in the faith that I have that same, I don't want to kiss it all the time. Though Paul does, there's holy kisses in here too. But there's that idea of, I just want to see that person. And there's people here at this church, the last church I went to, there's people in Ohio, Wisconsin, where if I'm in a room of 120 people and they're on the other side of the room and I see them, it's not like the movies, it's not romantic. But I'm like, ah, they're here. And there's that joy, like, ah, I see them. And then they see me and the face lights up and it's like dogs wagging their tails, right? We just want to run to each other and say, how has life been? What's Christ been doing in your life? How bad are you getting persecuted? You know, all these kinds of things because there's a brother or a sister there that it means something to connect with them, right? And we don't all have that with each other at the church, but we all have that with somebody at the church, I hope, where you see them and you adore them. And you just want to see them again because they light up your world, right? And Paul's saying that about his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. What a beautiful thing. I just want to see your face. I'm with you in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. I want to be back with you just to share stories. You people are awesome, and I love being with you. You ever visited a church out of town and you just fall in love with them as a people? You're like, what an amazing group of people. I just want to hang with them even when they're weird Jesus people, you know? I would rather hang out with weird Jesus people than boring, lukewarm people. And Jesus said the same thing. It's better to be hot or cold, but to be lukewarm, you're going to get cast out. God's just got no time for that. God wants that kind of eagerness to see his face, too. I just want to be with Jesus. I want to know what he looks like. They didn't take pictures back then. I would love to see Jesus and see what he looks like. I want to meet Paul. I want to know what the thorn was in his side. Did he have kidney, kidney problems? What was it? I want to meet this guy because I, I read what he's writing and I feel the same heart that he feels for some people in my life. I see my kids and my, my whole heart warms. I love seeing Grant play guitar. It fills me, I don't know if you noticed that, it fills me with pride to see my son become a man that can give something back to the church. And to humbly do that, and people are like, oh, it's so good, that's nice on guitar. And Grant's pretty good. He goes, praise God, usually. He'll just turn it back to God because he knows that it's not about him, it's about doing the best that you can do for the kingdom. That's an amazing, wonderful thing. And Paul's using that image. It's like a mother with her, her child. It's like a father trying to push their children. That there's a love that precedes the understanding of the world that happens here in the church. Verse 18, therefore, all of this, Therefore, we see a transitionary word there. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan has hindered us. Told you we were going to get to that passage. Satan's gotten in our way. We can't get to you. It doesn't work out right now. I'm sorry. I really want to. For what is our hope, our joy, and our crown and rejoicing is not even you in the presence of the Lord. Now, let me read that again. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Question. What is it? 
What makes us do all these things? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our hope and our glory. Oh, there's just this kind of love you don't see. I don't see it at work with my coworkers. I don't see it with my family when I go home for Thanksgiving. But when people are saying to Paul, the reason you did all these extra things, the reason you work so hard, the reason you have joy is because you're a shyster, you're a scam artist, you're just living in the clouds, you're in la-la land, you're, in, you're delusional, you, you're a Christian. What kind of world are you from? When people say that, Paul's response to it is, no, you remember who, what kind of relationship we had. My reward is not money, it's not flattery, it's not the opinion of men. My reward in this game is that you're going to be in the kingdom with me someday. I'm going to look across the room with millions of believers and I'm going to see your face that you made it to heaven. That's what it's all about. You are our glory and joy. So as a church, Paul concludes this thought for you are our glory and joy. We have a work of faith together. We have a labor of love that we do with each other. And we hope for Christ's return together. As a church, that's what we do as a body. We live in that reality and it doesn't need further explanation because it's real to us. It works. Every single week I find out what God's doing in other people's lives. Every single week God does that. Either I have a joyful intervention of God where something amazing happens and somebody comes closer to God or I experience some sort of persecution from somebody. Either way, it's all joy. It's all good. We live in that reality and we just have to remember that together. Again, Paul's argument, just remember. Remember what kind of faith we have. That's what we're here to do every week. There's no other motive for that thing. There's no ulterior motives. There's no scam going on. It's just that simple. It's honest and eager and it's real to us and it's just as un uncomprehensible to people that are outside of it. I was talking to a coworker. She came to the first service today, by the way. I was super excited to see her here. But I was talking to a coworker this week and she was complaining about the church. You ever talk to these people? Just the, the problems with the church. The church is this. The church is that. And I'm like, boy, you got to get to a church where you just have a brother or sister that you love and you see them every week and you're excited to see them. Like the rest of this stuff is, none of it matters, but you got to get into that place where you're just walking through your faith with somebody. I said, why don't you just come to our church? You have the punishment of me teaching this week, but you're going to just see people that love each other. That's all you're going to see is that we get together and we love each other. And, you know, we study the word together, we pray together, we worship together, and we have community together. It's really simple. But to the world, that's everything else. There's church growth plans and all this sort of thing. Suddenly becomes this major thing that it's not. It's just that simple. I want to see you every week, and hopefully some of you want to see me too. But that doesn't matter to me, right? Because I love you, and that permeates everything else. Again, this is one of the things about Pastor Mike that makes him our pastor, right? He just loves us. And you can see where that comes from. It's a maturity in the faith where just his reaction is, I love you. Like a parent, like a mother, like a father. I just care about you and I want your life to be well. And he's so gifted and blessed in that respect that it's an honor to go to a church with somebody that cares about us that much. Does anybody here doubt that Mike would get persecuted on our behalf? I don't doubt that for a second. If Mike could take a punishment instead of me, he would do it in a second. What I wonder is, does Mike have any doubt that any of us would do the same for him? Right? That there's a care and a compassion. Would you take that for your child? Yeah. Your spouse? Yeah. Hopefully we have that kind of love, but there's brothers and sisters in faith where we love each other that way too. I'm so glad I don't have to get persecuted for my faith. I really am. Praise God that he put me in America. I don't know how I would handle that. But I have a feeling that with brothers and sisters around me, I could. But I know that in my own strength, that terrifies me. But I also know that 
at a small level, we all kind of get that every day. There's, we all work with people and deal with people that don't really like our faith very much. But amen that we can live in that kind of hope and glory. Amen that we can work together, we can love each other, and we can hope for Christ's return together. So let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for the blessing. How convicting Thessalonians is. We get a glimpse inside this world, Lord, that Paul um, had this care and compassion for people. How much the world doesn't understand that. It doesn't make any sense for us to love each other when we should be serving ourselves. But thank you, Lord, that you flipped the world upside down and you made it exactly the opposite. We don't live for ourselves. We live for each other. We don't live for our own pride. We don't live for money. We don't live for greed or lust. We don't even live for position or power or attitude or what other people think of us, Lord. We just live for you. And Lord, we all struggle with that. Every day we have to wake up and take up our cross, humble ourselves before you and before others so that we're not out to be contrary with other people. We're not out to argue with other people, Lord. We're just out to love and share the truth of Jesus Christ. Help us to be bold in that. Help us to have no reservation. Help us to not be middle school children that worry about what people think about us. Help us to just speak your truth in boldness and clarity and truth with the only reason that we want to see more people in the kingdom with us, that we want to look across the room, Lord. We don't just want to see your face. We want to see the face of, of those that we love and those that we care about, that their glory can come as you give it to them, Lord, that they can avoid the wrath that they deserve, just like we can avoid the wrath that we deserve. Lord, we thank you. What a joyful week we have in front of us. Help us to embrace you each day, to be in the word, to pray, to connect with other believers, Lord, and to worship and celebrate you, even if we're in a jail cell. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hallelujah.